0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, November the 10th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. The election is over, the midterms are over, and it doesn't seem as if, at least for the moment, there's going to be another civil war in America. Everyone seems to be quite peaceful and civilized in a surprising sense. It's good news. But of course, the first civil war happened in America. There's no doubt about that. A couple of weeks ago, we did a show with the uh, South Africa-based historian Adam Mendelson on what it was like to be a Jew in Lincoln's Civil War Army has an interesting new book, Jewish Soldiers in the Civil War, the Union Army, I think. It's probably pretty miserable, no more or less miserable for Jewish soldiers than anyone else. The Civil War was awful, catastrophic, tragic on many different fronts. Uh, We've done other shows on the political dimension. We did one with David Reynolds, the very distinguished biographer of uh, Abraham Lincoln. He has uh, a book out, Abe. Uh, which has won a number of awards. What we haven't done, though, when it comes to the Civil War, uh, is talk about spies and the spying aspect of the war, which took up um, a great deal of attention and energy on both sides. Uh, Today, we are talking about spies. The Lion and the Fox is uh, a book that's coming out uh, at the beginning of December by my guest, Alexander Rose, a very distinguished 19th century historian. Uh, two rival spies and the secret plot to build a Confederate army. Uh, it's a wonderful drama taking place in the United Kingdom, mostly uh, in the uh, Atlantic port of Liverpool. Alexander is joining us from New York today. Alexander, congratulations on the new book. No, thank you. Thank you, uh, uh, Alex. You're uh, you've you've written a number of books. Many people will be familiar. Uh, with your best-selling book, Washington Spies, The Story of America's First Spy Ring. Why did you choose this story? It's an interesting story, Um, but obviously anyone undergoing a book, any author knows it's an enormous amount of work and effort and investment of time and energy and resources. Why this book? Uh, Well, to tell you the truth, I actually had
1: the idea for The Lion and the Fox about, uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And uh, you know, I put it aside. You know, you, you, when you're a writer, you tend to think of ideas, and you, you know, write out a note or two, and you stick them in a file somewhere. Um, and I was, uh, you know, and I put it away because one reason was I couldn't, I couldn't break the story. I couldn't. It's such a com- complex uh, story with so many sort of Byzantine twists and turns in it, and so on. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't work out how to how to tell it without writing some 900 page unreadable tome um and it it finally i finally got round to it again a couple of years ago and uh you know i figured out how to do it and it was actually quite easy you know the 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 actual structure and it's just based on uh you know sort of three phases of the um of of the effort to build a a secret confederate navy in in the united kingdom during the civil war and it was really just going to be i don't know if you remember it the uh uh the old uh, mad magazine Strip a uh, spy versus spy. So I had, you know, a, a Union spy and I had a Confederate spy, and they were both going to face off against each other and 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 you know just do spy versus spy, um, you know, sort of Tom and Jerry like almost. And uh, you know, and 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 you know, one of them was the Confederate was obviously there to his mission was to commission or build or acquire a, a Confederate Navy, and the the mission of the Union uh, a- agent was to stop him so what you know once once you ha- once i had that everything began to to click into place and it was, it was actually a you know a very fast book to write it's also quite <laughs> quite short uh which helps a lot so um, yeah healthily
0: yeah, sure then, alex we don't as we don't want 900 page
1: tones no, no, no,
0: i no. certainly don't i barely have time to write to read nine page times there were 900 pages <laughs> unless now, Andrew Mayer was on the show recently as a, a nine-page oh. book out, but maybe that's justified. So before we get to the lion and the fox, the two rival spies uh, that you cover in the book, give us the background um, on the Civil War. Because, of course, while you're a maven, not everybody else is. Give us the necessary details to make sense of this this spying endeavor, this attempt to build a Confederate Navy and the role of the uh, of Great Britain in, in in the Civil War, both sides trying to uh, get on Britain's best side. Uh, yeah, well,
1: you know, in a nutshell, there's quite a lot there, uh, but I'll, uh, you know, essentially um, Britain was neutral. It had declared its neutrality at the very beginning of the war uh, and basically said, look, we don't, we don't want to cast stones
0: here. <laughs> yes, I'll be an Alex. We're always neutral, uh, but we're never neutral, right?
1: Well, yeah, they kind of just wanted to wait
0: until the dust settled and then, you know,
1: get on the winner's side, which is the usual way of doing these things. And, um, you know, just is to, that, stay I, out I'm of it.
0: Jumping in, Alex, here, you know a million times more about this than I do, but um, is that entirely fair? I mean, there were people in Britain... In the nineteenth century, who felt very strongly, particularly on the issue of slavery. So it's not just a matter of perfidious Albion, is it? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, it is
1: from the government point of view. Uh, they're the guys running the country. I mean, Russell and uh, and and so on, the, the foreign secretary, are basically saying, this for There's a quote in the book. basically saying, "For God's sake, let's just stay out of this." Um, I mean, they basically thought it was one another one of their, uh, you know, rancorous colonial yeah, they had a bit of a
0: record in north america probably best not to uh, get embroiled again right
1: yeah you never know what they're like or what they're going to do um i think well i think one of the one of the, it's in the book one of the Russell russells someone says, someone says these people are like mad dogs you can't talk sense to them um you know because they were when they were trying to uh, cobble together a, some kind of peace agreement between the or an armistice between the two sides um, but, you know, I, I, where I would say is that there were quite a few people who did indeed want Britain to intervene in the Civil War, um, but uh, n- not for any reasons of slavery. It was because they were extremely pro-Confederate. Uh, there was a very large Anglo-Confederate uh, block in the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and just mm-hmm. generally, I mean, mo-
0: most they of them. Were all, uh, were, uh, they were all followers of King Cotton, I assume, the, most of the Confederate people. Oh yeah. I
1: mean Liverpool, where the, the book takes place, was, you know, the mightiest port city in the world. You know, I think it made built more ships per year than the rest of the world combined. But it was based on cotton. Um, and it, you know, these had it had these trading links and social links going back a century to to you know uh, to what what had been, I guess, the United States. Um so yes, I mean, Liverpool is essentially a Confederate fortress. One of the, the, the Confederate spy uh, goes over there in 1861 and he's, he sort of says in a letter, oh, it's amazing, there's all this Confederate bunting around, there's more, there's more rebel flags here than there are actually in Richmond. Uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. So there was actually a very weak union or pro abolitionist, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of faction within Britain. Um, and so in you know, the book, I trace that, you know, that this, it's evolution over the, over the course of the war. Yeah, know, bit,
0: the- let's just remind ourselves of the geopolitical uh, background here. I mean, Britain in the middle of the 19th century was the dominant world power. And of course, it dominated the Atlantic. It was a naval power. Was Britain's power primarily in terms of the Civil War? um a naval one was that the core issue in terms of trying to win over britain to europe to, to, to the confederacy or to the unions uh
1: yes i mean britain had
0: command of the ocean it commanded
1: it commanded the the you know the, the world it was the most powerful ship uh, ship uh, ship construction had the most powerful you know navy it was everything like that um its entire empire depends on trade uh you know cotton with uh, you know the south, um, yeah. A text and re-exporting textiles and so forth to India and and, and all that and Egypt and so forth. Um, so yes, so to the British, it's the most important thing is to keep the sea lanes open and to have trade with with the north and the south. Uh, what the British didn't like was that they always regarded Lincoln as a tariff man, uh, who's uh, you know who was always trying to uh, tax their goods. So there was, again, part of the natural link, whereas the Southerners, to to the British state of mind, were were good, good solid free traders, um, you know, very, very, very keen to trade cotton uh, for cash. So, you know, that again, that itself lends itself to a, you know, more sympathetic
0: um, And just uh, to fill in the background in terms of the Civil War itself, the North establishes a naval blockade. So I assume that that's, uh that's critical in terms of in, in particular what the confederate spy in britain was trying to break politically
1: yeah that was that was the entire intent of uh, of, of, of the the effort um for the south he was sent over you know the the, the confederate his name was uh bullock by the way uh was sent over because Dunwoody
0: Lincoln... bullock to be precise 1823 to 1901 the mm-hmm at least according to Wikipedia, which knows everything, the Confederacy's chief foreign agent in Great Britain.
1: Uh, Yeah, I got it right, I guess. He also has a very
0: fine set of uh,
1: uh, mustaches and whiskers there. Um, Very 19th century gentleman. Uh, But, uh, but, you know, for the South, yeah, it was Lincoln's blockade of three or 4,000 miles of coastline um, in order to try and slowly strangle the South, you see. Uh, which the British, of course, didn't like because it was holding up their exports and imports uh, to, to either, to, you know, to the south. And they had, a, you know, they had a great deal of money. Uh, I think it was The Economist magazine which said that in, the, in about 1861, that Britain was so dependent on these cotton imports that if they stopped, the, you know, half the country, I think it was about, uh, they say, one-fifth of the British population uh, in 1860 was directly or indirectly, um dependent on the cotton trade in one way or another in britain so cotton was was a gigantic piece of the of gdp um so lincoln's blockade is a serious threat to the continuation of that
0: but could um uh, in terms of naval power given that britain was the dominant naval power in the world yeah um, the, the british could break the blockade if they chose to couldn't they if they'd wanted to they could have broken it within about 30
1: seconds uh but the fact is is that they again they want to see uh you know what's going to happen and secondly you you know you don't want to get involved in a war with the north i mean it is still a power and more to the point um lincoln was and uh and people like that were in such ornery moods that it was very easy for them as they threatened to do on several occasions to just invade canada which was a of course a british possession. Um, so you know you don't want to tangle with Washington. It's it's not it's not some sort of little country you can just kick around. Uh, so there's many many considerations, strategic and military and economic and and geographic, uh, geopolitical that have to be taken into account about British
0: response uh, and the broader geopolitical uh, dimension. This uh, the picture, uh, Alex. Mm-hmm. Certainly the first time around in the the War of Independence, the French and the Spanish played an important part in the narrative. What were the other European powers' role or lack of role in the drama that was unfolding in America? Uh,
1: well, France under Napoleon III was again very pro-Southern, but it never, it, ne- it never, despite being a lot of, of diplomatic efforts by the Confederate by the Confederates, um, it never came in. Uh, on the on the southern side, it always stayed out of it. Why that, was, again, Napoleon, very... the so okay.
0: why was Napoleon the third so pro South? Sorry, why was Napoleon the third so pro Southern, so pro Confederate?
1: Uh, well, I think part of it is again economic, and secondly, I think I do think there's there's an element of uh, romanticism, and this again this this affected the British as well in many cases as a kind of a. Um, you know, an idea that the, that the that these poor oppressed southerners are being uh, kicked around and oppressed by the tyrant Lincoln. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we need to stand up for them, these great underdogs struggling for independence. Um, a counter to that, of course, the British and the French, for that matter, have imperial considerations in that if you back a rebel government breaking away from central authority, Washington, Then you know why can't uh, your Caribbean and African possessions do the same thing? Uh, So again, again, part of a consideration about not coming in, despite these, you know, these.
0: You You brought up the Economist magazine, which was founded in the middle of the nineteenth century on free trade principles, but it's always been a classically liberal uh, publication. What about the issue? I've talked about this before. What about the issue of slavery in terms of its impact on governments in Europe, in the United Kingdom, and in France? Surely it had some impact.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, in, the, in the again, it's it's like with Lincoln's thinking about abolitionism and slavery, and so on. These things go undergo shifts. It's not it's not a sort of a binary off-on type situation. I don't think, I can't think of really anyone in Britain, you know, really who was sort of openly, hey, slavery's great, we ought to introduce it here again. Um, Nobody's in favor, they kind of just assume, well, it'll, you know, eventually the southerners will get civilized and, you know, sort of get rid of this thing. Uh, In the meantime, we really need that cotton. We need hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bales of cotton each year to feed our factories and our workers, otherwise we're gonna be on the chopping block uh, as, as happened during the French Revolution, which wasn't so long ago, um, so you know there's there, there's that as there's that aspect to it. Um, but at the same time, and as I trace in the book, so slavery really doesn't pay. It isn't isn't a big consideration in Britain. It's it, it, British abolitionism is there. It's usually religiously based. Uh, usually dissenters, um, but it's quite weak. And what changes it? And what helps immeasurably the union agent, who has been on his back foot this whole time in Britain, he's been struggling, you know, sort, of, sort of kicking against the pricks uh, in London, who are all well, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to annoy our Confederate friends. Um, is that you know is the Emancipation Proclamation of, of Lincoln in, in late eighteen sixty two, which is due to come into force in I think January eighteen sixty three. Once that happens, there is a there is it's quite extraordinary. There is a a, a huge moral. Um, revolution or, or transformation in, 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 in British public opinion. Not politics exactly, but public opinion. Uh, I mean, I traced the number of abolitionist meetings that happened before the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. And it was just, you know, there's a couple, like two or three here and there every so often in small little halls, you know, little church halls somewhere. Um, after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, even in Liverpool, as Dudley, the union agent writes home, he says, you know, there was a, we, we were in the Grand Hall of Liverpool. There was thousands of people there all cheering on the name of Lincoln. So again, this is a huge shift in British thinking and it, it takes place over just over a couple of months. And it's quite an extraordinary thing uh, what happens. And, and it's at that point that the, sh- the tide of the war shifts.
0: So let's um, get to your two spies, the lion and the fox at the heart of the book. Um, we already talked about uh, James Bullock with his remarkable uh, side whiskers, and uh, as you mentioned, Thomas Dudley, uh, who uh, who was uh, the Unionist spy. Who is the lion and who's the fox? Ah, uh, good question. The um the the lion
1: uh, is is Dudley. I mean, Dudley from a very early age. I mean, he was a Quaker lawyer, built you know, building himself up by his bootstraps kind of thing. Uh, from rural New Jersey, very strong uh, Lincoln Republican and abolitionist from a very young age, you know, actually went down to the South when this, you know, in the 1840s and 50s to go on sort of slave rescue missions and bring them back across the border, uh, the Mason Dixon line, sorry. Um, so he's the lion. I mean, he always, he, he never wavered in this. The Fox is is a uh, Bullock, who had this kind of designedly aristocratic kind of, uh, louche, charming, very, very clever and cunning, very subtle minded, uh, type of type of attitude in which he, you know, he just sort of snaked his way towards his goal. He sort of, yeah, his his sister
0: was the mother of, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. So really, yep, yep. he's, he's the classic American aristocrat.
1: Uh, yeah, he, he himself wasn't rich. He, I mean, he didn't, he didn't inherit anything. He never, he never owned slaves. Um, but he, again, he, I, it was, I think his, uh, if I uh, correct his, his mother or his stepmother's sister married into the Roosevelt. So yeah, that's how they
0: kind of went. So, uh, the, the subtitle of the book, Alex, is the two rival spies in the secret plot to build a Confederate army. Is this what Bullock's mission in Liverpool was to figure out how the confederates could build a navy
1: yeah exactly um it, at the beginning he was you know he was sent over by uh uh, uh by the um secretary of of the navy um the confederate one and he goes over and he's who, who was that
0: to... who was the secretary of the navy
1: um uh i i've got a terrible memory I sh- um oh uh one of your viewers is going to know this. It's, it's very obvious. Uh, Mallory, sorry, uh, Mallory is the secretary of the navy,
0: and that was and, a sort of wishful thinking on the part of the Confederacy because they didn't have a navy.
1: Well, exactly. I think they had at the beginning of the war. They had precisely one blue water ship, so they had a lot to to to, to build up. That said, the the Union Navy, uh, you know, which which was sort of a the rump of the what had been the United States Navy, wasn't very powerful either. I mean, it was it had you know a dozen, you know, pretty old frigates and all that kind of thing. You're in also in the middle of a technological transition from steam, uh, from sail to steam
0: as well. Yeah, which is in um, in the long term very important. So, so so Bullock is sent over by the Confederate secretary of the Navy, which they didn't have a Navy, to what, to, to, to how was he going to do this? Did they have money? Was it a, a conspiracy? Was it an alliance? Uh,
1: yeah, it was essentially, again, it, it was one of these plans that started off really simple, and that is, we're going to give you lots and lots of money, and you're going to go to Liverpool, and you're just going to buy a bunch of ships and commission some ironclads and commerce raiders and that kind of thing. That's what you're going to do. It's really, it should be easy. Britain is friendly territory. Liverpool is super friendly. You're not going to have any problems. The problem is, is that while he's on the boat over to Liverpool, uh, Lincoln declares the blockade, Britain declares neutrality, which really surprised them. Um, so Bullock is now the minute he gets off the boat, Bullock's got to uh, work within uh, confines. He's got obstacles in front of him that he wasn't supposed to have. Um, this was supposed to be kind of a quick in and out, be there for six months, go home kind of thing. Um, and also the worst of all is that the you know the uh, the Confederate Treasury has you know basically no money either. I mean it had virtually nothing, so the money doesn't arrive. So what they have to do is they have to set up. Um, uh, you know, basically a cotton smuggling and gun-running scheme with uh, the head of a, uh, of a, of a, of a Confederate bank uh, cotton trader called um, Fraser Trenum, which is the name of the of the company. The guy who runs it in Liverpool is a guy called Charles Prelo from South Carolina and together he and Bullock come up with this way of smuggling cotton and guns and so forth through the blockade in order to raise money to build to buy these ships and commission these ships so that that's essentially how it works we got very complicated uh as the war went on but he was always um under resourced so that's one of the reasons he had to be so sort of crab-like towards reaching his goal
0: what about the i mean the confederates were notoriously badly organized and managed and of course lacking a lot of central authority um, what was the cha- chain of command like in terms of um, uh, his relationship, for example, with Robert E. Lee um, or, uh, or or the political figures running uh, the Confederate government?
1: Uh, Bullock Bullock did not hold a military rank. He was a civilian. The minute you get into being an, an officer, he used to be a United States Navy officer for a very long time He had re- like he retired. So he knew Lee,
0: and I assume he was relatively I- intimate with Jefferson Davis. I mean, this was an important mission.
1: Uh, I don't think I think he probably met him. Uh, his, his his only the guy he reported to was was Mallory, the secretary of the navy. That's, that's uh, he, that I mean, Mallory would have discussed it with Davis and and the rest of them. But uh, you know Bullock Bullock answered only to one man and that was was Mallory and, and remember the the speed of communication across the Atlantic was six or seven weeks there was no transatlantic cable ships went missing all the time So Bullock was essentially left on his on his own you know, for, uh, for, for four years or so do, doing whatever he could to to, to to continue the mission. So it was um, you know, he was essentially a sort of a, a kind of a lone wolf who
0: so he was in Liverpool he had right. he had a lot of his own resources where, where did he live uh, he just he just lived in Liverpool
1: he lived uh, I mean he wasn't a rich man himself he just lived in a r- rather small terrace house in suburban Liverpool um, but he would go to work at, at the the headquarters um, of uh, Fra- uh, Fraser Trenham downtown near the,
0: near how, the how aware were Bullock and Dudley of each other? Oh, they were <laughs> they were very aware of each other um, they loathed each other
1: uh, I mean they you know they uh, you know, the the US uh, consulate where Dudley was based was you know not very uh, you know just kind of a couple of blocks away from from the operations of Fraser Trenum um, they were constantly watching each other and shadowing each other and well shadow boxing I guess um, con- you know so they, they knew each other Perfectly well, um, you know. At one point, uh, Bullock, uh, sorry, Dudley, uh, sorry, Bullock manages to insert uh, a, a, an agent of his into uh, into the law office of, of Dudley's lawyer, and so he's beginning, he's seeing exactly what what Dudley's up to, you know, way before uh, Dudley even knows, really. Um, so again, it was again very, very cat and mouse, but yeah, they were very aware of each other. Well, Rather than cat and crazy. mouse,
0: it's lion and fox. So. I mean, given obviously the outcome of the Civil War and the fact that a Confederate Navy was never really built, should we assume that Dudley won this spy war?
1: Yeah, and it's part of the the phrase "lion and the fox," which I think comes from Petrarch, a uh, uh, Petrarch, uh, which is where the where the lion's skin does not fit, you must patch it out with the foxes, uh, and what what that means is is that. Dudley goes to Liverpool as a kind of this naive consul. He wasn't supposed to be the head of the most important intelligence posting in the world. It was just by accident that it happened uh, when Bullock arrives. He's just supposed to be the boring guy stamping documents. That's all he was supposed to do. Um, and so he's very naive. He's this naive and gullible fellow, uh, very well-meaning, idealistic. But he learns when he's after years of tangling with the likes of, of, of uh, Bullock that he's got to learn to be a fox himself and so he does and he outwits
0: uh, it's a very machiavellian type, yes. and a very machiavellian theme of course machiavelli machiavelli was very familiar with petrarch and uh, picked up the idea of the lion and the fox in some of his work so the book itself and the struggle is is political in in, in your mind um.
1: Yes, I mean they're
0: Machiavellian in states terms states of scheming here. and smartness and power and entry.
1: Well, yes, it, it, and it's not just the duel or rivalry between two two spies. I mean, there's there's a lot riding on this. You know, if the if the Confederates did manage to uh, con, uh, complete all their plans, like getting all these iron, m- brand new modern ironclads out, I mean, they would have just they would have been able to sink the entire U.S. Navy. Um, Uh, trying to enforce the blockade if that happens all the bets are off and at some point britain just says okay we're starting with the confederacy and you guys can have
0: uh, we're going to support autonomy or something like that
1: um so it's you know it's a game a small a small personal game i I, I mean if this had been conducted
0: in france alex my guess is that given french love of armaments and arming other countries they would have supplied both countries with navies and or, or the navies from their own shipyards. Why didn't the British just say, "Fine, you can each have navies, buy ships from us, and we'll make money through"? If they were such free traders.
1: <laughs> well, it's a good question, I, but I think they didn't want to do that simply because of the the foreign, what's known as the Foreign Enlistment Act, which is something that was a, was a, a law put around in eighteen eighteen nineteen to stop British volunteers going to go fight in uh, in South American wars of liberation. And everyone had completely forgotten about this act until until the civil war, when it's also used, uh, you know, as a way that you know, as, as the law it, it, it bans uh, anyone supplying weapons or ships uh, or anything like that to to combatants. Uh, so, how high
0: with- uh, within the British government did this issue get to? Um, as as Bullock and Dudley, the fox and the lion are jousting—if that's the right word—in Liverpool, trying to figure out how on how not to build a, a Confederate navy. Did did the issue get discussed at a very high level in, in the British government or in the British military? Uh,
1: not so much in the British military, but in the British government, certainly this was at the highest uh, cabinet level. Um, you know, uh, Russell, Earl Russell. Uh, was the foreign secretary and he, you know he was kept uh, constantly apprised by Charles Francis Adams, who was the US Minister to London, essentially the the ambassador uh, that Dudley, the union guy would report to about what was going on in Liverpool all the time and uh, uh, Adams would try and pressure Russell to crack down on this rather obvious uh, you know uh, gaming of the foreign Enlistment Act. and, and as I said uh, in the book, uh, uh, Bullock works out a very clever way of evading the foreign enlistment act. He, he finds a, a hole in it that, the, uh, that you could basically sail a, a fleet through and nobody else had to come up with it. Um, so yeah, so it reaches the very highest levels of the government and it's talked about in cabinet. And, and again, it, it's, it's, this is a, a huge potential problem at one point, the Navy problem, uh, you know, it comes very close. Uh, at the end of eighteen sixty-one, to to actually a uh, war erupting between the United States and and Britain over the over the Trent, um, which was when uh, uh, American sailors boarded a, a British ship yes. that was carrying Confederate uh, envoys. So I mean, this is a it's a tricky, delicate uh, subject that they're that they're trying to work out, and they don't like the fact that Bullock is conducting this kind of.
0: Why didn't they just throw Bullock out? Uh,
1: because he's very clever, and and they try to. Uh, several times, and you know, the, Dudley manages to get all these affidavits and and eyewitness statements and all this kind of stuff, and they go to court and all this kind of stuff, and he just keeps on outfoxing them, so to speak. Um, you know, because you know, according to he was following religiously, you know, the the, the, the rules according to the Foreign Enlistment Act. It, there was just a hole in them, so you know that was that was just how it worked.
0: But in the end, Dudley won. This, clan uh, yes. war uh, is that fair?
1: Yeah, because you know, for the first couple of years he was on his back foot, being pushed back constantly by by Bullock. Um, but again, the the Emancipation Proclamation transforms the the greater um, transforms the you know sort of the greater context here, and you know so Dudley gets a second wind, and you know he pushes forward, and again over the next couple of years the the Confederates are on the on the losing on the losing side. Uh, but Dudley doesn't leave it there because at the end of the war, well, it gets away with it. He just gets away with it. scot free. N- nobody comes after him. Um, and he sort of negotiates a, uh, a kind of a, uh, you know, get out of jail free card with the American authorities. Um, despite causing enormous amounts of losses, uh, his, the ships that he commissioned and, and sent out like the Alabama and the, and the Florida and, and so on, um, that some dozens and dozens of American ships, um, but so Dudley continues to fight 10 or 12 years later, uh, the, sort of the last round of what's known as the Alabama claims, uh, tribunal in, in, Geneva, which the Americans essentially sued the British for, for breaking their own rules and supplying these ships. And so they, they managed to extract a colossal sum from the British government. So there's a kind of a happy ending to this whole thing. And, and, you know, so that, that's but it's got, it's this kind of coda. To this, this yeah,
0: I'm um, re-reading Paul Johnson's History of the American People. He has a very sort of Johnsonian section on the Civil War. Very interesting section. And he basically says that the, the South was so inefficient that inevitably they were going to lose. So uh, I guess if, if he was looking at your book, The Lion and the Fox, I mean, he'd be very interested in the story. But say there was never really any outcome apart any outcome any conceivable outcome apart from the the south losing uh, are there counterfactuals in your mind uh, alex had oh uh, yes i, do. I don't had, think uh bullock successfully built a, a confederate navy might the whole history of north america be different
1: uh, I, I, I certainly believe so. The naval war is, is always comes, plays second fiddle to the land war. You know, it's always Lee versus Grant. Um, but the naval war is just as as important uh, in terms of international diplomacy. Um, I think you know. In some, I think the, the basic uh, uh, you know w- the way this would have happened is, is if it had the blockade, the Union blockade, been broken and cotton flowed freely. And these ships got out, and um, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. I, you know, personally think that you know the South could have arranged, especially at the low points of the North, could have arranged some kind of compromise armistice. Uh, which again, remember, the South doesn't have to win; it it, it just has to not lose to win. Uh, and that means is that if you can just fight the North to exhaustion or boredom or uh, uh, you know, or disgusted at, at, at the losses at places like Antietam, then you can you can try and extract a, a negotiated peace in which you'll say yes, over the next um, for forty or fifty years, we'll will eradicate slavery, but you have really you no know, intention of doing it, um, and in, in but and will and will be granted autonomy from Washington. So I think that, that's the that's the big biggest strategic picture, and so yeah, I, I do think that had this had this come off. And a few things fell the Confederates' way, even with their industrial inefficiency and uh, you know the lack of trains and railroads and industrial factories and so on. You know, you just have to fight the Union to 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 to, to um, you know a state of of, of uh, stalemate, and you kind of get most of what you want.
0: It's certainly a consequential story, The Lion and the Fox, Two Rival Spies and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Army. It's by Alexander Rose, one of America's leading 19th century historians. (laughs) You'll be familiar with a lot of his work, Washington Spies, Men of War, um, Empires of the Sky, so he's a much-published author. Congratulations, Alex, on the new book. It's out next week. Everyone should order it. Uh, Military buffs, Civil War buffs, people interested in remarkable story of the Civil War uh, need to get it. So, congratulations, uh, Alex, on the new book. Uh, What else would you suggest people read? What else are you enjoying, Civil War or otherwise? Uh, Well, I tend to sort of uh, not read about the subject I'm just I'm
1: writing about. about, uh, Otherwise, I mean, you know, I have I have this Substack where where I did called Spionage, where I do cases of historical espionage um you know mm. sort of old, old world spy stories um so right now i'm just reading this new book that just came out just for research purposes uh you know this book by benny morris on sydney riley you know the ace of spies um which you'll you'll be happy to see is is very uh, thin mm. and uh and just on uh, I've, taking a love of of, of travel log, you know forgotten travel logs and interesting sort of memoirs from many centuries past. There's this fellow called Minucci, a Venetian who ended up in India Mm. uh, in the 17th century and wrote this wonderful uh, set of of memoirs about living under the last of the great Mughal emperors, you know, the one of the uh, uh, Aurangzeb. Um, So he's almost like the, you know, he's like a a, sort of an Italian Samuel Pepys uh, mooching around India in the 17th century. Really interesting book. so yeah, that, that kind of thing I find I, I'm, you know, I'm tending to do right now.